I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here. And I do, I do love the church in the sense that, um, you know, we're called to love everyone, but uh, we're also called to um, love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to draw from that love and that strength so that we can go out and proclaim the gospel. So to have a Saturday to spend some time hopefully sharing uh, what the Lord has been uh, feeding me over the years, and I hope to benefit from your presence. And I've had a chance to meet several of you, uh, Renee, Adam, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, but I'd love to meet all of you if I have the chance, maybe at one of the breaks uh, or at the end of our, our time together. But uh, I wanted to uh, give you sort of a bird's eye view of the scriptures, uh, focusing on the Old Testament in this first uh, session, which will be a bit shorter. Uh, and then we're going to take a break, uh, like Pastor Tim said, and then we're going to look at the Gospels, uh, specifically, why do we have four? Uh, why not just one gospel, or, or, or why not seven? Maybe you've heard that there were other gospels circulating um, in the early church, like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth, and so why did the church prioritize these four uh, and exclude the others? So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that and the beauty of the, the fourfold witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, and then our last session together, we're going to talk about how the book of Acts serves as a bridge uh, between the Gospels and the rest of the, the New Testament. So um, let me start, uh, and you can advance the slide if you'd like. Let me start with an image. Um, this is uh, the Transfiguration. And it's, it's an image of the Transfiguration, but it's also an image of the Bible. And it's, it's the one image that I want you to leave this morning with. And uh, we're going to come back to it at the end of our time together. Uh, but you can advance. Wow, that's big. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, we've had some technical issues this morning. But uh, this is on your handout. Um, it's the second quote there on your handout. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' Bible. Uh, I noticed this church is about following Jesus Christ uh, and his fundamental command to uh, love one another. And, um, and so for me, I don't, I don't worship the Bible, but I submit to it because it was Jesus' Bible, talking specifically about the Old Testament. And Jesus used uh, the, the Jewish scriptures to communicate the gospel and perhaps also to develop uh, his own understanding of, of, of his mission to a certain degree. And so I want to go back to the first century and talk a little bit about the scriptures uh, that were read in the synagogue at the time of Christ. And we have a historian named Josephus who was a contemporary of the apostles. Uh, he was not a Christian, but he is helpful because he gives us firsthand uh, witness to Judaism at the time of Christ. And he, he says, unlike the pagans, we don't have an innumerable multitude of books among us. 
uh, disagreeing with and contradicting, contradicting one another, uh, but only 22 books. And then he goes on to list the following. He mentions the five books of Moses, 13 books of the prophets, and four books containing hymns, which, are the, which is a reference to the Psalms, and then, quote, precepts for the conduct uh, of human life. So there he gives you a snapshot of what the scriptures were for the Jewish people uh, at, the time, uh, at the time of Christ. Um, you can move forward. And his list uh, corresponds really close to uh, the Tanakh. Are you familiar with the Tanakh? Maybe some of you have Jewish friends. Uh, but uh, our, our Jewish friends, of course, don't refer to what we call the Old Testament uh, as the Old Testament. They call it the uh, Tanakh. They actually have a couple terms for it. But Tanakh is an acronym uh, which stands for uh, Torah, uh, which is the T. The N is Neveim, and the K in Tanakh is Ketuvim. And it stands for Teaching, Prophets, uh, and writings. And uh, you, can, you can move forward if you like. And another title for um, uh, this, this collection of works um, is Mikra. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, Jews will call their Bible Mikra. And all that means is um, that which is read. And that gives us uh, an insight into the function of Scripture at the time, at the time of Christ. Um, up here is uh, a picture of the synagogue in Capernaum. And uh, this is where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. Uh, it's a seaside um, small town right on the Sea of Galilee. And I've actually been there. Now, the white stone there is, is from a later time than Christ. It was built in the 5th or 6th century AD. But maybe you see at the base there this black basalt stone, the foundation. Um, archaeologists uh, date that to the time of Christ. So I've taken groups to Israel, and this sounds kind of um, nerdish, but uh, I've stepped on every single one of those stones, just to say literally that I stepped... Uh, in, the, in the feet of Christ, right? So <laughs> uh, it's, it's a sacred site for me in some ways because um, we know that Jesus preached here. And just down the street uh, is Peter's house. And archaeologists know it was Peter's house because there's graffiti from Christians that goes back to the early second century. Uh, and apparently Peter's house was converted into a church uh, at a very early, early period. The reason I bring this up is because Jesus, when he was growing up, didn't have a Bible. Um, sometimes it's easy for us to forget this, but right now in the United States, we're at 99% literacy, according to a recent study by the CIA. Is that not remarkable? Over nine out of 10 of us are able to read and write at least at a fundamental um, elementary level. And uh, yet for most of um, our history, as the people of God, only a small fraction could read. 
the majority of Christians throughout history learned their faith from pictures in the church and what they could glean from preachers uh, in their sermons. Um, literacy is a fairly, mass literacy is a fairly modern uh, phenomenon. And of course, it's ironic, isn't it? Because now for the first time, everybody can read the Bible, but no one does. <laughs> it's truly tragic. But uh, at the time of Christ, they didn't have the printing press. They, they didn't have uh, literacy. Only a few, the scribes, um, were trained to be able to read the scriptures and interpret them. And so the, the role of the scriptures was that they were to be read publicly. And the Jewish people were very unique in the ancient world. Um, there were other sacred writings out there. Um, there were, for instance, uh, Buddhist writings far away in the East uh, that monks would use in their discipleship. And of course, the Greeks had Homer, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and, and those writings would be uh, read publicly uh, at different festivals. But as far as we know, the Jews were the only people who would gather every single week to hear sacred writings read to them and then expounded in a sermon. They were the only people group to do that. And of course, we, the people of God, Christians, have continued that practice. And it's gonna continue for your church tomorrow morning as you begin this new sermon series. Uh, but this is what's defined us as a people. And so, by the way, I was really encouraged by your name, Phoenix Bible Church. Um, I grew up at Scottsdale Bible Church uh, moved to Phoenix uh, in 1980, and my dad, Daryl Dahuse, was a pastor there for many years, and uh, my brother, Kent, is a pastor at Bethany Bible Church, not too far from here. And so I've grown up in the Bible Church tradition, and it's, it's, it's exciting for me because not too many new churches put Bible in their names anymore. And so I was surprised to see Phoenix Bible Church. Um, it kind of fell out of use in the 90s. Um, but to me, it's encouraging uh, because we've always been a people of the book. And the idea of wanting to yield to this, the text and submit to it in our life is, is an important distinctive. Uh, you can move on. So let's just go through these three sections that Josephus mentioned. This was Jesus's Bible. At the beginning of Jesus' Bible was the Torah. And I give you the Hebrew word because we often translate the word Torah as law. And that's not incorrect, but it's incomplete. Because the Torah is actually the first five books of our Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And, and by the way, if you've got Jewish friends, they don't call those books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy. They actually call those books by the first Hebrew word uh, of each book. So what we call Genesis, your Jewish friends call Bereshit. Uh, but, it's, but they're the same books. All right? And, and the thing is, is, is you've read Genesis and Exodus, and yes, there are many laws, 
uh, 613 of them. <laughs> one scribe counted up once. But there's also narrative. It's not just a bunch of commandments. And so when we call it law, uh, I think we miss something. I'll just give you a quick example. So sometimes, and this goes back to our Lutheran kind of heritage, uh, there's this idea that Jesus opposed law, uh, that he opposed regulations. And so maybe you'll remember his, his teaching about divorce. And uh, the Pharisees came up to Christ and, and said, you know, is it okay for us to divorce our wives for any reason we, 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 we choose? And uh, they cite the Mosaic law as a justification for that, that procedure. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said it was because of what that Moses gave you that allowance. Remember the, the hardness of the human heart. He said it was because of the hardness of human hearts that Moses basically made this accommodation that husbands can dismiss their wives with a certificate. And so people will often say, well, look, there Jesus is sort of standing against the law or redefining it. Well, the way Jesus responds, though, is he says, what was it from the very beginning? And he takes the Pharisees back to Genesis, right? And he says God's original intent was that there would be a, a one woman and a man and that they would be married for life. And so what people miss sometimes is Jesus uses the Torah to interpret Torah. Are you following me? He's using narrative. He's using the creation story at the beginning of the, of the canon to properly define what Moses was doing in his dispensation, if you will, or his, his place. So anyway, I want to keep that, I want to make that clear. So the first section of the Tanakh, Jesus' Bible, we call the Torah, which simply means teaching. Uh, instruction. And uh, Jesus treasured the law, the Torah. Uh, he never criticizes Moses. Uh, he felt that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had misinterpreted the purpose of the Torah, and so he clarifies it for them. Uh, but he always speaks highly of Moses, right? Um, I was encouraged yesterday um, I had spent some time with uh, Usama, the, the president of the mosque, off of um, the 17 there, and maybe you heard about the big anti-Muslim um, demonstration that happened there yesterday. And I was nervous because Phoenix doesn't have the best reputation for being inclusive. I've been here a long time, <laughs> and uh, we blew it with the MLK holiday, and when SB 1070 came along, uh, there was a lot of national attention on Phoenix as being a, a, a non-inclusive um, city. And some of that's deserved in our past, and I won't get into that. But when I would go, you know, I, I would travel around the country, I'd hear people say really horrible things about Phoenix, and I would defend the city, because I love the city. I think this is a wonderful city. And it really bothered me that just a small segment of the population was basically defining us when the city of Phoenix is far more inclusive than that. And I was talking to Usama. It was interesting to me because he's a devout Muslim, obviously. He heads the mosque. But he loves the teachings of Christ. And he, he particularly 
was drawn to Jesus' summation of the law. Remember that? He said the whole law and the prophets, it just it hangs on one command, which is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then he went further in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said something that, to my knowledge, no religious leader had ever said before, and that was to love your enemy, to love your enemy. And what I thought was fascinating was yesterday, Usama was citing that teaching of Jesus in the mosque while there were Christians in the community protesting the protesters. <laughs> Did you see it? And when I woke up this morning, I got on CNN's uh, website, the one image that they had from Phoenix was a big sign that said, love your neighbor. <laughs> So uh, I, was, I was encouraged by that. I, and again, this goes back to Christ and the way that he helped us understand the Torah, the instructions. Um, St. Augustine, some of you have heard, um, Augustine wrote a book helping seminary students, if you will, interpret the Bible correctly. And Augustine said, if you're able to... Uh, show how the scriptures point to love, then you've ultimately succeeded in understanding them. Um, and when we don't point people towards love, at some level we're misrepresenting Jesus uh, and his teaching. So that's the law. Uh, we can go on to the next slide. <clears throat> the next group is called the Neveim, uh, or the prophets. And in the Jewish canon, there are two subgroups. There are what are called the former prophets and the latter prophets. And this may surprise you, but from a Jewish standpoint, um, Joshua uh, is considered a prophet. Uh, and in fact, they put Joshua, uh, Judges, uh, what we would call First and Second Samuel, they, they treat that as just one book. Um, by the way, why do we have 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings? Um, it's because they had to divide those books up into scrolls a long time ago. <laughs> but they really are one book. Um, and we'll talk about that some more um, after our, our break. But um, in the Jewish canon, um, they consider judges, um, Samuel, Kings, um, as uh, the former prophets. And then the latter prophets uh, begin with Isaiah. Um, Isaiah was the best-selling prophet in the first century, if you will. Um, he was read everywhere. And it's probably not an accident that Jesus cites the prophet Isaiah, and he even mentions him by name more than any other prophet. Um, and so Isaiah heads that group. And then you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And one of the things that you'll notice is these three massive prophets are all talking, are pointing towards the Babylonian exile. All right? And so the big, the big piece here is that God created a covenant with Moses and the people with stipulations, right? Curses if they were disobedient to, those, to, to, to the Torah. And what you get with the prophets is basically God speaking through them, warning God's people, 
because of your disobedience, I'm gonna raise up a foreigner who's gonna come in and he's gonna destroy the temple and he's going to um, exile you. All right, and so that's kind of the meta-narrative, kind of the big story uh, of the Old Testament. Um, And then you have the 12 minor prophets. Um, There you have Jonah, Malachi, um, uh, Hosea, and so on. And the reason we have those 12 little prophets together is because they they fit on one scroll. Okay, so they come from all kinds of different periods of history, but, but the rabbis put them into just one scroll because it fit on about a 30-foot length um, thing of papyrus. So uh, that's where we have uh, those little prophets. Okay, so those, uh, that's the second level. You can advance. And then uh, finally, uh, we have the, uh, the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim, in some ways, is a uh, catch-all Uh, for the writings that didn't fit easily into the Torah uh, and into the prophets. And so uh, you you obviously have the book of Psalms. Uh, The Psalms were hugely influential because not only did the Levites sing them in the temple during the, um, the ceremonies, they were also a part of the synagogue liturgy, right? And so what would happen is when Jesus would go into a synagogue, they would recite from the Torah, and then they would recite from the Nevi'im, the prophets. And remember, the prophets were interpreting the Torah. <laughs> and then the community would recite psalms. Does that make sense? So that, that was the liturgy that Jesus would have grown up in. And you gotta keep in mind, whenever Jesus would preach in the synagogue, all these other things were happening around him. In fact, in Luke, you get a a description of it where Jesus is in Nazareth and in his local synagogue, and he's actually given the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it up, he reads, you know the passage, but he, he reads it and says, today this has been fulfilled among you, right? So there you've got him participating in this liturgy reading from the second reading, probably, that was going on um, in that synagogue at the time. So uh, in the Ketuvim, you've got the Psalms, uh, you get Proverbs and Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. In the Jewish Bible, the last book of what we would call the Old Testament is Chronicles. Um, But we put the minor prophets at the end of our canon, and we end with Malachi. The reason we did that primarily was because at the very end of Malachi, right, God promised to bring back Elijah to challenge the people to repentance, and then that's gonna be the link to the New Testament where John the Baptist is Elijah calling the people to uh, repentance. All right, how's that for a bird's eye view of the Old Testament? So that's uh, the three sections. I wanna leave you just with one last piece before we take a break. So we had various uh, orders in the Old Testament before we finally fixed the Christian order. And Josephus 
When he talks about the last section, he talks about um, uh, books that are relevant for life, um, is how he describes it. He says there in the quote, precepts for the conduct of human life. Do you know that the early church fathers arranged Psalms, Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs to follow the, uh, the order of our lives? Um, they felt that in, in abbots, uh, leaders of monasteries, I'll, I guess I'll approach it like this. When a young monk would go to a monastery, uh, or a nun would go to a monastery and would ask for scripture reading, the abbot would say, begin with the book of Proverbs. So if you read the book of Proverbs, you see that a lot of it is instruction of a father or a mother to a child. You notice that? A lot of the instruction in the book of Proverbs are to youth, <laughs> and it's primarily about chastity and wisdom and restraining the passions. Um, you know, I'm an old guy now. I'm in my 40s. Um, but I sure remember how hard it was with passion in my 20s. <laughs> and um, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of prayer. And so young Christians really do well by meditating on the book of Proverbs. Um, it helps curb passion, if you will, and orders our desires you know, towards God. Um, and by the way, if you've got strong passions, um, you shouldn't feel guilty about that because God gave you those passions. And one of the purposes of life is ordering those passions Godward. Does that make sense? You know, God doesn't want us to become passionless. <laughs> he wants us to be passionate followers of him. But what happens is, um, Tara, you have babies and... Uh, <laughs> You know, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're, uh, you're middle-aged and um, you, you, you don't quite have, um, the passions are not raging like they used to. And that's when the abbot would have the monk begin to read Ecclesiastes. Uh, when my dad turned 50, um, he did nothing but teach Ecclesiastes for a decade. Uh, and it drove his church crazy because like, everywhere he'd be invited to teach or at his church, he was just constantly teaching out of Ecclesiastes. Um, the reason is because Ecclesiastes teaches you how to begin to let go of things. You know, you spend your 20s and 30s amassing your home, um, getting your career focused, um, getting some success. Uh, but then you reach a stage in life where um, that becomes tiresome in some ways. And uh, your body doesn't work like it used to. And there's a transition there. And we're all going to face it. Um, I'm moving into it right now at this stage of my life. And Ecclesiastes was designed to realize that all is what? Vain. Now, you'd think... In our culture, it's not fun to get older because the, our culture doesn't give a lot but retirement homes to the elderly. Um, 
And we don't have a robust theology in the US for being an elder, which is a huge shame. Because um, when the monks would reach old age, they would spend their final years in their life meditating on the Song of Songs. And that may shock you a little bit because it's so erotic, right? It's an erotic love poem at the literal level. But every church father also saw it as having a spiritual meaning of your soul uh, expressing its love for Christ, okay? And so they read it metaphorically. And, in, and, and instead of getting old and cranky, they would meditate on love in the final years of their life, preparing themselves to stand before the beam of seat of Christ someday. But for them, it was eradicating fear of that encounter, but really cultivating what they want that encounter to be, right? Which is staring into the face of the beloved. And so uh, for them, that those three books are wisdom books. Does that make sense? And they kind of give us those three stages of life. Uh, that's the Old Testament. Let's take, uh, I guess, a 10-minute break. Pastor Tim, is that good? All right, let's take 10 minutes, and we'll pick up and look at the Gospels.